E.M. Benson of the Education Division at the Philadelphia Museum of Art was a well-known critic and author in his day. He was thought to be provocative, but his aim was, we're told by the New York Times, to break through so much of the pedantic writing that stands in the way of appreciating art in our lives. In the American Magazine of Art in May of 1935, he writes, I concluded my last article, Phases of Naturalism, by saying that all roads lead to fantasy if they are pursued far enough. Perhaps I should have prefaced this statement with another and more fundamental one, namely that to a lesser or greater degree, fantasy is an integral ingredient of all the arts. This is so by reason of the role that the creative imagination plays in attaching wings to the heavier-than-air body of unsifted reality. You may personally prefer to journey on Cezanne's sturdy wings rather than risk your neck on the neoclassical stage props of Monsieur Ingres, to join your hands with Donatello rather than with Luca della Robbio, to travel in Rembrandt's company rather than in Schneider's, to pitch your tent in El Greco's camp rather than in that of Velasquez. But whatever your preferences, you must be aware that this artistic excursion, whether it take the form of a dance by Martha Graham, a worker's choral song by Hans Eisler, a film by Eisenstein, or a fresco mural by Orozco, is an illusion of reality created by the controlled and directed imagination of its author. By their very nature, the arts are basically illusionistic. They transport us from the actual time-space plane of a contiguous world into the compressed frame of another. They may leave a sharper taste of reality on our lips, but during the time we are under their spell, we are divorced from the world which swiftly envelops us when the spell is broken. Most of us take this aspect of fantasy for granted and do not think of it as such unless it becomes the dominant or the controlling factor in a work of art. In general use, therefore, we more readily associate the term fantasy with Goya, Blake, Redon, Daumier, and Brochel rather than Chardin, Raphael, Constable, or Vermeer. The lines of demarcation are as you may well imagine, not very sharp, and those artists who like Rembrandt, Tiepolo, Watteau, El Greco, Ryder, and hundreds of others frequently stand on the frontiers of fantasy must necessarily be excluded from the category in favor of others whose work, the strange flowers of fantasy, grow deeper roots. It does not follow that the latter are either more or less artistically worthy than the former, but only that they more nearly answer to the specifications of fantasy as we understand them. In making my selections, I was guided by several determinants. Is the nature of the fantasy the result of the artist's own creative imagination, or have they absorbed or appropriated group symbols of fantasy without refining them in the crucible of their own vision and artistry? Is it the kind of fantasy that only seems fantastic because of the bathos of the subject matter or some other extra-artistic reason? 19th century German romanticists fall into this category. And is the fantasy of sufficiently high aesthetic caliber? The fine marriage of fancy and reason which we find in Goya 
is also to be found in comparable form in Peter Breuchel. Except for the engravings and drawings which he did in the spirit of Bosch, his work is never nightmarish. It's whimsical, fanciful, sardonic, and his wit robust and lusty. And unlike Bosch, he is never didactic. His paintings have fantasy, which gain strength and clarity through an extraordinary control over the architectonic elements of his pictures. Perhaps, then, it is the fantast who, after all, gets closer to the truth than anyone else. For instead of giving us an idealized transmutation of reality or a photographically accurate record, they give us only its most salient and telling features after they have been distilled in the alembic vessel of the fantasy of the artist. Words of E.M. Benson, the American Magazine of Art, in May of 1935. Let's go back to what Benson says about 16th century artist Peter Bruchel. He says, His work is never nightmarish. It is whimsical, fanciful, sardonic, and his wit robust and lusty. And he also points to the extraordinary control that Bruchel exercises over the architectonic elements of his pictures. All these years later, some of those words might be used to describe the work of Dennis Corrigan, whimsical, fanciful, sardonic, and his wit robust and lusty. Benson says Broyle gains strength and clarity in his paintings through extraordinary control over the architectonic elements of his pictures. And that's precisely what we'll find in our conversation with Corrigan in advance of a solo show of his work at the Wyoming Valley Art League opening this Friday. He'll talk with us about the primacy of shapes and forms and the key that is color for him. Dennis Corrigan was raised in Toms River, New Jersey. He earned a BFA in illustration from the Philadelphia College of Art. And after a three-year stint in the U.S. Navy, an MFA in painting from Temple University's Tyler School of Art. Following graduate school, Dennis worked as a book and periodical illustrator for a number of clients, including Random House Publishers, The New York Times, The Philadelphia Inquirer, Horizon Magazine, and RCA Records. His whimsical, surrealistic style has been exhibited internationally and represented in the permanent collections of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Philadelphia Museum of Art, the Brooklyn Museum, the Library of Congress, the Arts Council of Great Britain, and numerous private and corporate collections. The show at the Wyoming Valley Art League is titled Dennis Corrigan, From the Subliterate to the Sublime. The opening reception is Friday, August 18th, from 5 to 8 p.m., and we're all invited. The exhibition will run through September 29th. We had Dennis Corrigan paying a visit to the WVIA studios to talk with us about his wonderful imagination and the work that he does in anticipation of the show. You have a way with your images of turning things around, and humor does that, doesn't it? Turns things so we see things differently. I just heard recently that the Irish think sideways. 
And it really made sense because it's almost you shoot off to the box you happen to be in and look at it objectively, I guess. And I've been mentioning to you, I've got serious ADD, which is crippling in terms of relating to normal people. And I mean, some of the things are of it are that you drift off in the middle of a conversation, you're in the classroom and you get interested in the, the heron that's hap- perching in a tree next to the window. And as soon as I hear a word, I go off with that word, which is really difficult in responsible adult conversations. But what then would that condition make possible for you as an artist? Uh, Well, interestingly, uh, if you have it, you have trouble with like paperwork and everyday responsibilities and finishing tasks, but you can hyper-focus, like superb, supreme hyper-focus. And that's when I felt happiest. And some of my digital work, even hand-done oil paintings, is very, very detailed. And you, you lose a sense of time. You feel you're in another space. You feel you're doing what you should be doing. But then you get back to, you know, it's like the uh, clown, like a clown came in and <laughs> said something. Hey, what about that new adhesive we could apply to the ducks that keep landing on the roof of the uh, iron factory? <laughs> Well, let's go to Shakespeare, the fool, the jester. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Right? It's important, especially for a society that is rigid and Absolutely. Uh, or any organization. There has to be somebody to stir things up. And so you, as a young student in Tom's River, were scribbling in the margins of your books. Um, what were you doing that... First, that- we had a really frightening uh, art teacher. She was large and mean and authoritarian. And uh, we had to do, like, render cantaloupes for a week and stuff like that, which, I mean, I suppose there's a use for it. But I had the imagination. I was just inventing dead men hanging from trees and uh, strange perversions of Norman Rockwell and stuff. And by, by the way, back then, Norman Rockwell and Mad Magazine were my main influences. <laughs> I should have been a magazine called Mad Norman. <laughs> what did you see in what drew you to Norman Rockwell? Uh, the handling of paint and the colors and the space and the just the feeling you got from him. And when I went to art school, he was really looked down on. I'd like challenge any of my teachers to do what he did. Yeah, actually, I went to Philadelphia College of Art and I had a good time there mainly with friends. We learned from each other, I think, generally more than the teachers, not always. And uh, they uh, hated Norman Rockwell. And it was a minimalism, abstract expressionism period. I love abstract expressionism because it's everything except subject. So it's like color, energy, mood, contrast, space, and uh, tendency to see things in it. So, And sometimes I urge my students to just do it abstract expressively and then turn some of the things into characters. That's, that's a good way to go. In my own life, I keep thinking I'm going to do gigantic paintings someday locked in a barn somewhere where no one can get at me. I'd have pizzas slid under the door daily for survival. And then the giant paintings would be taken to the Met (laughs) and worshipped by all. Yeah, that's not delusional. You said, though, that when you were on... When I was young, yeah, I kind of thought, I'll end up in the Met. I did end up in Carbondale recently with a show. I appreciate it. It really was kind of a nice thing. So as a young fellow, even then you knew that you were destined to do art. Yeah, because I, I loved doing it, and I, I really couldn't do anything else. I mean, I failed trigonometry drastically. I was good at language and English. Interestingly, here's a side note, I did a thing for uh, Edgar Allan Poe's The Mask of the Red Death for my English teacher, who was really a good teacher. 
And it was a painting of this ghastly skeletal thing coming out from curtains and stuff. Anyway, I don't know where it went. And uh, 60 years later, I got an email from a biker woman who found it in the trash in northern New Jersey. And a lot of my work gets thrown out, which makes me really happy. Why? Well, it probably looked demonic or something. And somebody who had extreme values about the afterlife got rid of it. But she loves it. And it really wasn't bad. And so, that was when you were still uh, young? Yeah, before. probably sophomore in high school. So it was a gift for a teacher. I don't know what he did with it. And maybe he threw it out right away. What about your fellow students? You said you learned in uh, in Philadelphia, upper level classes, you learned from each other. But were you an, uh, an oddball? Were no, you? they kind of liked me for the imagination and also the humor that was put into things. We read in your biography that you have work in the Metropolitan Museum. What's that? It was a print there called Queen Victoria Troubled by Flies, which is the first time I ever got noticed out of graduate school and in the Philadelphia galleries. And it's in a drawer, though. It's not hanging. And there's no picture of it. So it's there. It was collected. I used to work with Associated American Artists in in, uh, New York, which is a big print gallery. And the guy that ran it was kind of a serious name in the art world. So I think he talked them into buying it. But yeah, it's there. Well, you got a dream. I mean, your dream is sort of real. I didn't go up the steps. Somebody just took it from another gallery and, and taxied it over. But my spirit was in the car. I left college. We, Four of my friends, we got outside graduation and said, now what do we do? <laughs> I went in the Navy during Vietnam just to uh, you know, not have to make a decision. And it's in years and years of confusion and try this and try this and this didn't work. And then I was a respected illustrator in New York in the 1970s because a good friend, Jody Burns, from New York City was very savvy and he started taking my work around. And uh, the word, I don't know, it was a great word they used back then. I forget it. Well, I think it's an adjective, something regarding fabulous, but it was that more hippie type word. Anyway, he, he represented me and I'd just stay home and do stuff. And then I was really getting all over the place. And I said, ah, I think I want to do printmaking, which is so stupid. And you have to identify something, hang in there with it and experiment off to the side. I like where I am right now. I like teaching because I learned a ton and having to explain things badly verbally to my students, but very well in writing, which resulted recently because of COVID of me creating assignment graphics about how to approach basic stuff and why it's so darn important. And people miss it. It's actually very easy. Like, let's say a painting, if you figure it out in shapes, dominant shapes, middle size, and small shapes, and different values, darks, middles, and lights first, just as flat shapes, it'll give you a map to anchor a really beautiful painting into place. But nobody seems to get it. Another thing is draw one inch by one and a half inch drawings. Tiny, 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 but stay with it until they have a power. And the thing is, it forces you to not be finicky. You know, the pencil point's so big compared to that. And uh, it's a roadmap. If you can blow that tiny uh, drawing up to billboard size and it's good, it'll still hold up. Those are keys to the experience we would then have with Anything that you're working yes, on, indeed. right? Yes, and they're really basic things, and they apply to music, and I think they apply to writing, and and probably singing and everything. That's the essence of what makes a piece or a story grab us. Exactly, and I tell my students, you may not end up in art, but the rules of it you can apply to almost anything, including business, everything. It's like you basically take stuff apart and reassemble it, or you observe real life, and draw from it, and you're learning something there. I also tell them, 
to work work from actual life and also work from your imagination with no reference at all. And an in-between to that is to study a photograph intently, running your fingers over it, put it away and draw from memory. So then you're not copying and some of your spirit's getting into it. How about you and going to museums to look at what other people did throughout the century? I hardly leave the house anymore. Most of my inspirations come from the people I see at 3 a.m. at Walmart. Now, I, I just, I used to go to museums. I love Vermeer, uh, Bosch, um, N.C. Wyeth. Uh, there's so many good ones out there. Otto Dix, the German Expressionists. And I started to loosen up once I saw these because ultimately, I tell my students that impact is more important than uh, skill. So you can be raw, brutal, childlike, but wow. But skill can trap you into kind of a perfectionism. Not that there aren't many wonderful things done with skill. Some of the uh, Dutch Northern Renaissance stuff, Van Eyck and uh, Robert Campan, they weren't sure who it was. Those stuff, things are astounding. I mean, I don't think that will never be done again. First of all, they didn't have cameras. Second of all, the sun went down. They didn't. They couldn't work all night. And they had to draw everything and then bring the drawings back to the studios. And they were in high competition with the other people, especially in Bruges, because that was an extremely mercantile city with a very, very rich middle class that wanted artwork. What about Hieronymus Bosch and the Garden of Earthly Delights? What do you make of what um, is... I think he loved to do humorous and outrageous things. I'm sh- I'm surprised the church put up, but they're just astoundingly beautiful. It's almost a cartoon style. And I've noticed uh, his uh, light source is always in the upper right. He basically uses raw sienna, something like alizarin crimson or very dark red. Well, you know what? It's like um, NCY's palette, which was, I think... Raw sienna, alizarin crimson, which is like a deep wine color, and Prussian blue, which tends to give beautiful aquas, white and black, and that's it. When I was in school, I'd see people with 40 colors on their palette and say, what do you, I didn't know. I mean, no one ever told me that. I just need, to be a very, I think very successful and happy painter, if someone told me three or four of those facts, I would have an easier career. Norman Rockwell, N.C. Wyeth, and Mad Magazine. Incredible and- drawers especially Wally Wood. There was a skill there that wasn't tight. It was very loose indications of things. Yeah, that influenced me a lot. Um, I, I, sometimes when I draw, I can feel remembering one of those artists, how they drew an eye and stuff. And it's, it's really good to copy good people because that continues too. I have a problem with photorealism in that people are just copying photos in paint. But I think some of them can bring an energy that doesn't exist in the photo into them. Let's go here. Oh, okay. All right, this is a, a piece I've done entirely digitally. Some of my digital pieces involve doing a very tiny drawing, like one and a half inch thing I told you about with graphite and taking as far as I can, then bringing it into digital and then pumping up the contrast and taking the contrast pump up to a solid color and I start painting into it from the top layer and a bottom layer. Now, this one basically started, I took a very vague figure photograph and then started drawing into it. So basically everything about it disappeared. And then I took a, a reduction of that and created a creepy looking daughter over here. This, the title of this is uh, Daddy Was an Insect. And you might wonder why, but I actually drew this hideous father figure first. Yeah, that guy. And uh, 
I wanted to draw some figures because they tend to sell. <laughs> and uh, I love this guy's face. I mean, it's full of tragedy and good lighting. And then I start drawing things out of what I have. So I'll repeat a shape or create a flow. And then sometimes I'll take it and repeat it again. The little guy over there, but he doesn't have the wings. He's mostly a locust. I guess it's a comment on horrible fathers. And Who's in the window? Window is one of them without hair, mm-hmm. see? And then all these things begin to, like the repeated shapes of the figures start to pulse out, like parentheses or whatever. And then it gets boring, so I'll shift the shape. The colors are basically uh, aqua, gold, and violet, which are it's a secondary triad in painting. But my wife taught me this, that... If you have a yellow or yellowish, reddish, bluish, black and white, that's all you need. It's pretty much what N.C. Wyeth did. You can create wonderful colors from those limits, but you can also add a pump-up color if it's needed. But otherwise, people use generally too much color. Some people. One's living in my cellar. Do you ever dream like that? No. I Mostly my dreams involve cities, run-down cities made of brick, people by people I've never met. Uh, also, I'm also teaching courses, but I can't find a building, and when I do, it's huge, and I can't find a class, and I ended up teaching something like advanced physics, which I don't know anything about. <laughs> yeah, that's basically my dreams. Also, 1950s cars. So basically, yeah, no, I don't dream like this. Mm-hmm. Maybe other people see it and do it, but I really like this piece. It's all digital, everything beyond the photo prompt from this, but I like the idea of taking a photo and then going into it and using my drawing skills to kind of play down stuff, emphasize stuff, and leave a little bit of the shading and light underneath. This is a pretty sober, surreal castlescape, I guess I'd call it. And this is just two, uh, three colors? A Prussian blue, no, not Prussian, Prussian gray, I think. It's a gray, and then there's uh, black, and then there's white, and there's yellow ochre. So it's basic complementary yellow to gray violet. And I like working this way because sometimes there's too much color in things. But look, there's a little person living in there. Come on, buddy. There he is. We look at that and we feel COVID. We feel isolation. We feel That's interesting, yeah. For me, it's like, okay, this shape needs to be darker. This shape needs to be lighter. We need more spherical against rectangular things. It's pretty much a design assignment for me. Then I'll start to get a narrative going. I just thought adding one character there helps the viewer identify more. But there really isn't. It's more about the design, shape, and mood than there is a message. Although, as an illustrator, I had a lot of message-related things. And I also like doing that. This is, uh, I just started this with nothing in mind, nothing in my head, and, I, and charcoal and a piece of plywood. And, I, and it ended up being a gigantic ogre, pleasant-looking ogre, somewhat strangling a fundamentalist. <laughs> and... Um, I think I did very minimal drawing just to find the characters and things. And then I, I sprayed it with a fixative so the charcoal wouldn't come up. Then I coated that with some clear acrylic varnish so that the wood was sealed. And then I used the color of the wood as a base color. kind of comes through a little bit here and there. Once again, going to aqua, gold, and violet in secondary palette. But I, I looked at this one, and I said, i got to do more like that, because that was fun and very direct, and there was nothing in my head until it evolved. But those are real eyes. It's an ogre with eyes that are alive. Well, I, I can do eyes really well. If I can't draw something, and I'm too lazy to figure it out, I'll put something in front of it, like a foot or something inappropriate, like a leaf, a foot, a flying cigarette, I don't know, hamburgers with wings, whatever, so I don't have to draw it. 
I, you know, the thing there, that's not, I tell myself, it's not necessarily bad, okay? Because it provides a, a switch that why is that there? But then if it's designed properly, it looks like it belongs there and creates a sense of mystery that never gets solved. And that's the word that I was going to ask you about, the sense of mystery, because you don't tell us who they are, what their relationship no, is. No, I don't. Sometimes I have longer titles, which kind of, they're kind of asinine, but they're not very helpful. Sometimes I should leave the work untitled, too. I, I, this is a, something about a friendly ogre. There's a sweetness there in yeah, the ogre. I, I, I really love that face. Looks like uh, one of the guys from Mad TV, actually, accidentally. Something like the bronze or gold cuffs are put in later, too. It was too simple here, for example. And then uh, it gave me the gold to play the third mm -hmm. thing of the secondary triad. Now, what will happen to a piece? You put that out for sale and someone will I've, buy I've it? really been terrible regarding marketing. I, I get, finish the painting, and I, I suppose I could go around and try to find gallery stuff. I don't. But now we have, you know, the Internet, so more and more people see it. I wanted to ask you about Brahms. What That's are you up cool. to with Brahms? Well, once again, I found a picture of him as a young man. He was quite handsome looking. He turned into kind of a toad in the later part of his life. Uh, but don't we all? But I just liked the jacket he had on, the expression in his face. So I basically drew that in uh, some kind of charcoal pencil. And then I started adding other things. So there was this anchor person. And then there was, I added some weird characters. I added a landscape. And then I did a Victorian house that was on a pole, like a birdhouse, except it would slide up and down according to sunlight because there were plants connected to it with little uh, cords and, and uh, grommets, if you will. And the house would go up and down to catch the light. And there was a large cat looking over a mountain in the distance. So it's all surreal stuff. But my choices had to do with the shape of the thing and the, the weirdness of that being included. So that's what was driving me. It took forever. I mean, these charcoal pencil drawings, I had to do values with the end of a long pencil very, very lightly for hours just to create a form on, on a face. So it was very tedious work, but I, I liked the result. And it had nothing to do with his music? No, except I loved it. No, I liked the nothing to do with anything approach. And I was an illustrator. And sometimes they had I had things in annuals and stuff, and they describe another artist's piece, and they come to mind and say, whatever you think. But I wasn't being cryptic on, on purpose. But there is something to leaving something to our imaginations. Yeah, I want them to be always interesting. And every time I look at my best on work, I really still like it. And I'm not quite sure what's going on, but I enjoy it. And I think that's a good quality. You know, it remains forever interesting. If we figure this out at first glance and walk away. Good point. We could think that that's a cigarette and that's a cigar. If I were to change anything, I'd, I'd make the P and the S a little shaded so it seems to warp back into the television a little bit. Although sometimes there's a thing called a discord in a painting. You put in something that's kind of wrong, but it helps the whole thing work. A painting teacher told me that once. I wasn't thinking of him, but he said uh, discord color, like it doesn't really belong, but it ignites all the other colors, which is really interesting. Or a discord, like you got a, a, a beautiful wedding scene, but there's a, a flying tank with a lizard driving it in the background. <laughs> what you put that in there for? Discord. One other important thing to me in most art, even abstract expressionist stuff, or what's the other one? Non-objective, which means there's no subject. You just start working. 
And the way I would do that is pick an already beautiful palette. And a beautiful palette, if you have a warm light source, you have to have a complementary cool light source. And then everything in between will click together. You know, a monkey could do it. And uh, I'm glad I was forced to do digital because now I use digital. A student does something that's kind of mediocre. I take it in a digital. I select areas and make them lighter or darker and send it back. And suddenly their work is good. And the other thing is you can take a horrible piece of artwork and make it good. So years later, just keep it around and figure a way. Let's make this good. Do you have to address AI? Yeah, I don't know. What do you make of it? It's amazing. You can talk a painting into existence. And then they're very, very skillful looking. They have light source and all of that. I'm thinking a couple ways is just learn how to use it fantastically or use it as a source for a handmade thing that has a crudeness to it and an energy and an impact that was derived from that to kind of go backwards with it. The other thing is I incorporate 3D constructions into my paintings as frames. And AI could do that with printing, but it would be much more expensive and time-consuming. So I don't know. It's really making everybody think. And uh, also it's stealing other people's art to make the art, which is, I mean, I don't know what... um, But you will never abandon charcoal and paint? I no, I, I don't. I can't. I really can't. I'm tempted now that I'm putting my show up to go back to some of those earlier styles. We'll get to see some of the variations of yeah, your style. Yeah, you'll see. There's a big drawing with a big frame with about, I guess, nine different line drawings in it of ridiculous situations. So the idea, I think I drew it first, and then I come up with a title. Sometimes the title is first, which is much easier. So that's in minimal line. I tell my students. Minimal line is the least visible thing you can make, but it can carry very, very important ideas, such as E equals MC squared. <laughs> there we go. And then there's there's some paintings I did when I was going through this depression. They're more shape-based and less full of form. But as I looked at them years later, they look pretty good to me. I said, you know, if someone found this in an attic 100 years from now, they'd like it. So I got to stop being so critical. And then there's the ogre painting, which is more developed, and a nicely rendered fundamentalist preacher there. <laughs> well, there's prints from way back, my uh, Brahms print. There's one called uh, Truman Discovers MacArthur Abusing His Dog. Very <laughs> complex. And then there's one, uh, Fool's Errand, which is a very complex uh, kind of a circus scene which I did, took months to do for some filmmakers, quote-unquote, in New York City, and they decided not to pay me for it because it wasn't zany enough. So the fool's errand is me. And some of the things are invented, some are derived from photography, but it's really a cool piece, very cool. So that's the three black and whites. Three color are three men holding a grudge is a color print, and red Madonna, which is kind of very surreal woman in a red hood, on a Victorian couch at the seashore. And what else is the other one? Oh, kitty litter. It shows uh, cute cats throwing ashes and junk out of a car. <laughs> that one bothers me a little because I didn't make the ashes predominant enough, but it's been on best-selling prints I've had, so I should just shut up. So it'll be from line drawing through complex digital pieces. The most complex pieces will be Intergalactic insomniacs, there's a bunch of monsters all with bug eyes in outer space. And what else is there? Uh, the chaos theory, which is quantum mechanics showing just this bizarre interconnected thing with unidentifiable humans and creatures in it. 
And beyond that, what was the other one? Oh, well, I'll leave that. It'll be a surprise. Maybe it'll be a door, door prize. Mm-hmm. Give him a door, <laughs> a miniature door. Here's your door prize. Artist Dennis Corrigan speaking about his work in anticipation of the exhibition at the Wyoming Valley Art League in Wilkes-Barre opening this Friday with a reception from 5 to 8 p.m. to coincide with Third Friday in Wilkes-Barre. His work has been represented in permanent collections of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Philadelphia Museum of Art, the Brooklyn Museum, the Library of Congress, the Arts Council of Great Britain, and many private and corporate collections. And he has had reviews of his exhibitions in galleries with phrases like the Bosch of a New Age, referring, of course, to Hieronymus Bosch, artistic license, a strange and mysterious world. Also, cry and laugh at the humor of Dennis Corrigan. And finally, Corrigan's cabinet of unearthly delights. Artist Dennis Corrigan with a show titled Dennis Corrigan, From the Subliterate to the Sublime, at the Wyoming Valley Art League Circle Center for the Arts, 130 Rear South Franklin Street in Wilkes-Barre. The show opens this Friday, August 18th, and the reception will be 5 to 8 p.m. The exhibition runs through September 29th. For more information on the web, wyomingvalleyartleague.org, wyomingvalleyartleague.org. Dennis Corrigan, From the Subliterate to the Sublime, and the opening reception, August 18th, 5 to 8 p.m. The show runs through September 29th at the Circle Center for the Arts, 130 Rear South Franklin Street in Wilkes-Barre, wyomingvalleyartleague.org. 